Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right. Look at that. We're back. We're back in the Gospel of John. Like, we spent probably most of 2022 in uh, this book of the Bible, and there's more to go. So we're picking up where we left off here. Way back on October 16th, believe it or not, was the last time we heard a message from John's Gospel. And I'm glad to be back here because we've learned so much about the heart of Jesus through his ministry uh, throughout Israel. We've seen time and time again in chapters 1 through 12 that Jesus is willing to go to great lengths to help people understand that he is God's son, the Messiah, the one that they should put their faith in and the one that they have been waiting for. In, the, in these first 12 chapters, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. He healed a crippled man who was lame for decades. He fed the 5,000 people. He healed a man who was blind from birth and he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus also taught that he is the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. All this Jesus has done because he is passionately focused on bringing people to the Father through himself. By chapter 12, Jesus' public ministry comes to an end, and from chapter 13 to where we are now in chapter 16, Jesus has been in one long conversation with his disciples in the upper room where they shared the Last Supper together. Jesus is preparing his closest followers for life after he ascends to heaven again. So we'll see this theme continue today as we look at John 16, verse 16 to 33. What we're going to see in today's passage is Jesus helping his disciples understand that events that are about to unfold, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, are going to change the course of history. This passage is important for you and me because what Jesus is preparing his disciples for is the reality that you and I are also invited to live in since we are followers of Jesus as well. What we're reading in this passage is Jesus' description of an entirely new way of interacting with the Father that the disciples have never experienced. This is new. It's exciting. And this way of interacting with the Father that Jesus is explaining is for you and me as well. Embrace what Jesus is saying in this passage, and you and I can unlock the joy of what it means to be a modern-day disciple. Not a capital D disciple like these guys, but we're still followers of Jesus. We still associate and, and live the life that they lived as well. So are you ready? Okay, awesome. Well, then we're going to pray and we'll, we'll take a shot at this thing. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it reveals to us who you are and who we are meant to be. Lord Jesus, I just want to pray and ask, would you help us to understand what you are calling us to in this passage? Would you help us to understand how we can live for you in a closer relationship? Help us to not make excuses or to not rationalize things away or to say, well, that's them and this is us. But Lord, I pray that there would be a willing spirit, a willing spirit in every single person today based on what you are going to say to us. Amen. All right, so continuing this conversation that started way back in John 13, Jesus begins today by saying, In a little while you won't see me anymore, but a little while after that you will see me again. 
Some of the disciples asked each other, what does he mean when he says, in a little while you won't see me, but then you will see me, and I am going to the Father? And what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. So Jesus is now just several hours away from his death on the cross. We know that his death is going to be followed three days later by his dramatic and miraculous resurrection, but the disciples still hadn't fully put all those pieces together quite yet. So during the time that he's dead, the disciples, they won't see him, of course. When he comes back to life, he, they will see him again. So back in verse 10, just as to make sense of what Jesus said here, or what the disciples said in verse 17, back in verse 10, which we read a couple months ago, Jesus said that he is going to the Father. And that's why the disciples asked, what does he mean when he says he is going to the Father? So the disciples, they were clearly confused by what all of this meant. It was Jesus was speaking a little bit uh, in figures of speech. So Jesus, in verse 19, it says this. Jesus realized that they wanted to ask him about it. So he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that you will see me again. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you, so you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. That verse hit me so hard this week that I, I made it a, a memory verse in my in my rotation. I love that. So here in Jesus's initial explanation is Jesus's initial explanation of what he meant. Jesus reveals that he understands the emotional response that his disciples are going to have and even the emotional response of his non-disciples, who they're going to have to his death and resurrection. At first, the disciples, they're going to be devastated and experience deep grief because Jesus's death because of Jesus' death, while other people around them, namely the chief priests and the Pharisees, they will celebrate and rejoice that they have killed Jesus, this man who's been interfering with all of their plans. Then when Jesus is raised back to life, the disciples' grief will suddenly turn to joy. And Jesus compares this sudden change of emotion to childbirth. Anguish gives way to joy. I'm taking Jesus' word for it. <laughs> Jesus assures his disciples as well that no one can rob them of the joy they will have. So Jesus is predicting what the disciples are going to go through. This is pretty heavy stuff, right? Because Jesus understands this and he's trying to get his guys ready to, to face one of the tougher moments of their life. The part that gets my attention is the joy that they will have seeing Jesus alive again and that it will never be shaken by anything or anyone. No one can ever rob them of that joy, right? If we think about the lives of Jesus' followers after his resurrection, we can see that they live out their lives with an unshakable joy because they saw Jesus, who was dead, back alive again after he was crucified. In Acts 4, verse 33, it says this, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So if their joy had faded away, if it was just like, oh, that was really cool, 
What do you guys want to do for supper? You know, like if it was one of those moments, it obviously wouldn't be spectacular, but the joy that they felt in understanding and, and comprehending like our Savior who is dead, this guy who is our best friend who we've spent three years with, he was dead and now he's alive again, like that kind of joy, if it could just be shaken, if it could be dissuaded from them so easily, it wouldn't have impacted them their entire lives. But here in Acts 4.33, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I love that. Like, that's the kind of joy that the Holy Spirit gives to people who are interested in comprehending, in wrapping their minds around, in seeking and finding who Jesus is. I think it's awesome that the result of their joy is that they went everywhere with the rest of their lives, all over the world, telling people, hey, you, you won't believe this, but you need to. Our Savior, the guy who was crucified on this, on this cross, he's alive. He is live. No one's ever done this before. And this is why it matters to you. Like that's the kind of joy we're talking about here. So John 16, 22 and Acts 4, 33. I think these are actually proven true by you and me. And here's what I'm going to hear. I'm going to explain this to you. See, Jesus predicted the joy that would take hold of the lives of the disciples, right? And this gave them a powerful testimony about Jesus for the rest of their lives. From their testimony... From the testimony of 11, who later became 12 again, centuries of believers have also taken joy in the good news that Jesus died for us and rose back to life. You and I are here today as the most current result of the joy that Jesus promised his disciples that they would have. It, it, it had to continue. If, if it broke for a generation and no one spoke with joy about the resurrection of Jesus, that he's alive again, you and I would not have what we have today. But because that joy has been contagious throughout the centuries, we're sitting here today celebrating, weeping together, amazed at God and the way that he moves in our lives. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection, defeating sin once and for all, has been passed down through generations and has reached our lives, all because the disciples testified with power to everyone who would listen. This passage keeps getting better, though. Listen to this. Verse 23. At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth. You will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. There it is again. So Jesus is explaining to his disciples and to us what it's going to be like when the Holy Spirit comes after Jesus ascends to heaven. Of course, this is going to happen, you know, 40 plus days later at Pentecost. When Jesus is on earth, the disciples, of course, they talk to him. He was there in flesh. Jesus, I got this issue. Jesus, what do you think of this? Jesus, I don't understand. Can you help me out? Of course, they went to Jesus. But when Jesus leaves earth, the Holy Spirit comes to give us a direct line of communication to the Father. In John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus has been talking consistently about how his disciples are going to be led by the Holy Spirit. And that's why back in October, we took a bit of a, a spin-off, a bit of a rabbit trail series, and we talked about in, in this series called Led by the Spirit, what it means for the Holy Spirit to, to infiltrate our lives as we submit to Him and for Him to lead us and guide us in the way that we live. 
One of the key differences that Jesus says his disciples will experience is that they will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name. So this will be new for the disciples, and Jesus repeats himself one more saying, ask using my name and you will receive. So an important question emerges for us. What does asking the Father using Jesus' name mean? To answer this, I think we actually need to look at the word name for just a second here. Now, if I say that Leona has a good name in Kandu, what does that mean? She's honest. That's part of her, right? And character speaks about our reputation, right? Character and reputation, kind of synonymous, kind of different, but still very similar. But if we say that Leona has a good name, it would speak that she has really good character or reputation. And then if I come to you and I say, hey, I need this from you. And by the way, Leona sent me. It's like, oh, Leona sent you? Oh, well, she's amazing. So if she sent you, clearly then this is something that we're going to follow through on, right? See, I used her name and it gave me authority with someone else because she has such good character or reputation. That's what it means to use Jesus' name. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 23 and 24 when he says, use my name or ask using my name. It means we go to God and we ask for something that is consistent with Jesus and his desires and his reputation and his character and his authority. Praying like this in Jesus' name means that we are mindful of Christ, aware and considerate and passionate about his will, what he wants as we speak to the Father. So just because someone tacks on a phrase at the end of their prayer doesn't mean that their prayer has any special degree of authority or approval through Jesus, right? So we can't say, dear God, I want a better job. I want a newer car. I want an easier life and I want nicer friends. In Jesus' name, amen. And then it's going to happen, right? I wasn't talking about you in my prayer. You guys are good friends. Don't worry. No, it doesn't work like that. That's all things that we want based on our flawed character and not the character of Christ. But rather, as we know Jesus and understand his heart for us and the people around us, we change in the way that we pray. Our prayers aren't selfish. Our prayers aren't about us. It's actually about God and what he wants. Maybe our prayers begin to sound more like, God, please help me to prepare to endure hardships and never give up telling people about you. God, help me to raise my kids to love you and seek you always. God, give me vision for how I can help to be a part of your ministry here in CFC and in Candy. I I just don't want to be on the sidelines any longer. Jesus, please give me strength when I am tired so that I won't give up following you because I know it's hard. Lord, cause my love for you to grow. Help me to not be attached to this world, but be willing to give up anything, anything for the sake of the good news. Notice how we didn't even say in Jesus' name. You don't have to when you're praying according to the character of God. Because you're already in agreement with Him. God has taught us through His word, these are the ways, these are the things that matter to my heart. I want you to pray in agreement with those things. Then you're praying to honor my reputation and my name. Then you're praying with my authority. And that's an exciting thing to understand 
When we have the authority of God as we pray, it means that we have died to self and we are living for Christ. What a beautiful place to be, right? You know, when we meet for the rally, which is our church's prayer and worship time, it happens the second Tuesday of every month, we're learning how to pray like this. We don't get together and say, hey, anyone have any prayer requests? Yeah, my nose is runny. Yeah, oh, well, let's pray. You know, those are fine. We can do that. But you know what? God has things that he is asking us to agree with him about. And you know why? It's for our good. It's for our good. When we pray according to God's will, what happens is our hearts are aligned with the heart of the Father. And we change. We don't pray to change God's mind. We pray so that he would change our mind. So friends, I I don't get this forward or this blatant, but it's 2023. You and I both need to make, not a New Year's resolution, but we need to make a deeper commitment to Christ. We have a, a hearty group of 15 people that show up here to the rally. I don't understand why we're not all here. I don't. And it's a point of frustration for me. Not, and not to the point where I'm mad or I'm angry, or I'm upset with anyone, but I don't know how to make people want to pray and understand the heart of Jesus. That's my frustration. I wish I had a a magic wand or whatever it would take. But all I can do is invite you. All I can do is say, why not? Would you try it? Would you come? Would you submit to what God wants to do in your life? You're not submitting to Pastor Jeff by accepting an invitation. What you're actually doing is saying, Jesus, I want a little bit more. Why not? What do you have to lose? Something to consider. It's interesting to see that initially in this passage, the disciples, they were confused by what Jesus said, and they turned to each other to figure it out. And instead of asking you know, Jesus, what he meant. But now Jesus tells them in this short while that they won't ask Jesus for anything, but rather they will ask the Father directly, who is the same one that Jesus himself talks to, right? Friends, Jesus is talking about new relationship that is possible between believers and God the Father. Up until this point in history, people approached God through mediators, through the Jewish priests that were in place in the temple, these were middlemen between believers and, between, and God. But the result of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension will mean that people don't need a priest or a mediator or a middleman for them any longer. Jesus gives us direct access to the Father. We're living in an age where people in the Old Testament were dreaming of. They were pining for this kind of closeness, saying, oh man, it's going to be good. We hear these promises. We see them in the scrolls. We see them in the prophets. I just, I, I ache for that day. And they didn't quite get it, but man, we did. I don't know what we did to deserve this blessing, but we are living in the golden age of fellowship with Christ. Consider that. The best result of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension will mean that people don't need a priest to mediate. They can have this direct access. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 22 actually talks about this for us. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way. 
and through the, through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, not Pastor Jeff. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Jesus was the final priest we ever needed. He didn't make a sacrifice that was only good until the next time we sinned or until the next festival or holy day showed up. His sacrifice is forever, once and for all time. It cleansed us completely, past, present, and future. Now the page has been turned and our connection with God is personal. Jesus gives us direct access to God without us needing to go through anyone. Christ came here for us so that we can have a way to go directly to the Father. And this is so consistent with the ministry of Jesus, right? He came and said, hey, I'm here. I am the Word of God. I'm here to point you to the Father. And of course, the defining act, His death and resurrection, of course, those things would once and for all unite us with the Father, which is exactly everything Jesus talked about. His life was so consistent. Next, Jesus gives a more plain explanation of what originally confused his disciples. Verse 25. I've spoken of these matters in figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively and will tell you plainly all about the Father. Then you will ask in my name, there it is again, and I, I'm not saying I will... Oop, my pages. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf... For the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Father into the world and now I will leave the world and return to the Father. So Jesus clarifies what we've been talking about this morning. The fog begins to lift for the disciples and they are like, ah, now we get it. Jesus knows their struggle to understand and he speaks into it for their sake, giving them clarity. There's a great reminder here for us that our relationship with God the Father always hinges, always hinges on our relationship with Jesus, God's Son. Jesus reminds us that the Father loves us because we love Jesus and believe that Jesus came from God to live here on this earth. Now this is interesting. Some people might hear verse 27 and start to wonder, okay, so does that mean that God only loves me if I first love his son? Do I have to love God first before he'll begin to love me? This is, this is a reason why it's, we need to be careful not to build an entire understanding of a topic such as love based on one verse, right? You can go to dangerous places if we ask questions without seeking answers. God is always, 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 always the first one to love. And there's verses that give us evidence of that. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And Romans 5.8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us once we cleaned up our act and came to him. No, while we were still sinners, while we were far from God, not even thinking about him, not even considering that he should be the Lord of our life, that's when God gave us his great love. He is the initiator. Amen? Yeah. And then, we then have a chance to respond with love to him. John 14, 21. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. 
John 15.10 When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. So here verse 27 is amazing because it kind of completes a love sandwich. I couldn't think of a better term, so that's what we're going with. God loved us first. And then we love God by responding to Him in faith and obeying Him. And then He lavishes His love on us yet again. And He surrounds us with love at the beginning, at the end, in the middle. We can't escape from the love of God. It made me think of this, this song that I listened to when I was in high school by the longtime Petra lead singer John Schlitt. And it was a song called Can't Get Away. A portion of this song goes like this. Even in my darkest hour... You display your mercy's power. Since I met you, I discovered can't get away, can't get away from your love. I may run and I may hide, but you will seek and you will find. I can't get away, can't get away from your love. Man, God's love just pursues us all day, every day. It's so good. It's the beginning of relationship. It's the middle and it's the current part of our relationship. Remember how on Christmas Eve we learned that the greatest of these is love in our Now and Forever series? Verse 27 feels to me like it's pointing us once again to the power that love holds in our lives. God loves us. Then in response, we love him. But then he keeps pouring his love out on us, not just once, but often. To all this, the disciples respond. Verse 29. Then his disciples said, at last you are speaking plainly and not figuratively now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you from this we believe that you came from god the disciples give jesus a statement of faith they're saying hey yeah you are the man we we get it for sure you are great and then jesus gives kind of a mixed response although uh, to their affirm their affirmation of faith verse 31 jesus asked do you finally believe But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. The disciples just said that they believe that Jesus came from God. Surely a statement like this would give them a steadfast, unwavering confidence, even in the midst of trouble or severe persecution, right? They are standing with Jesus, who they just admitted is from God. What do they have to fear? Why would they ever run away? Jesus, referring to himself being put on trial and crucified, he tells his disciples that they will indeed desert him. But he will never be truly alone because God the Father is with him always. The disciples' belief is good, but there will be moments where their faith is challenged, and one of them is going to come very quickly. This is the same for you and me. We believe in our spirit, But our flesh is easily frightened and discouraged. Jesus understands his disciples and us better than we understand ourselves. In his life of faith, or in the life of faith that you and I are living, there are challenges that we're going to face every single day. And Jesus knows these challenges to our faith are coming. And that's why he's warning us here in passages like this. He's preparing us to be strong in our faith in him even when it's really, really hard. You know, one thing I learned years ago is that the sign of a maturing Christian 
is that their highs aren't that high. And their lows aren't that low. Instead, because they live in harmony with Jesus, he gives them perspective on everything, both the good and the bad. Have you ever met uh, a person who is kind of an emotional yo-yo? And you, every time you see them, you're never really sure which version of them you're going to get. Because sometimes it's great and sometimes it's horrible, right? And, and it's like there's not a lot of middle ground. When things are good, they're amazing. But when that person has something bad happen, they're devastated. And it's just hard for life to go on. It's one extreme to the other. This is the sign that their circumstances dictate to them how they should feel about their life. Their life has to be good for them to feel good. When a Christian lives this way, this might reveal that emotionally there still is some maturing that needs to happen. Emotions are good. Okay, don't get me wrong. God gave us emotions so that we know when things are bad or good, when we know and we understand that we need to go to Him and all that kind of stuff. But emotions should not dictate how we live our lives. If someone experiences high highs and low lows, it might point to the fact that they need to live more consistently under the care of the Holy Spirit instead of under their circumstances, right? His steadying presence is so much better than us being at the mercy of uh, the emotions that, that infiltrate our lives every time we experience something good or bad. So here's, here's a story that may help you us, uh, understand this a little bit. Working with teenagers for so many years has been really, really good for me. I, I have seen so many students come into my life who are all over the map. They are these emotional yo-yos that we talked about. Once, one week, they're, they're at youth and full of life and energy and joy, and it's just life is amazing. The next week, they come and they're just super melancholy, feeling like there's no happiness, and the world is a dark place, right? Now, I'm not picking on teenagers, but teenagers, perhaps a little bit more than adults, but not always, they just tend to wear their hearts on their sleeve. But this is actually what I love about them, because you don't have to guess with teenagers how they're feeling. They're just like, well, look at me. I am who I am. You know me. Just, my emotions are right here. I don't have to tell you everything. I'm, I'm living my life out loud. I like that about teenagers. I can remember quite clearly one night towards the end of youth group that we had, um, we had a, a message. We had like a worship and a message. And then there was a closing song. And then at the end we told students, okay, the sanctuary is going to be a place now. If you need a, a moment to receive prayer or if you want a chance to just pray on your own or, or meditate or on God or whatever, this, this is a quiet zone. If you need someone to come pray with you, just signal to them and one of our leaders will come. So we, we had our song, we closed, and at the end of it, I, I stood at the front and just kind of scanned the room to see if there were any students who needed anything. And there was one girl sitting way at the back named Teresa, and she made eye contact with me. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll be right there. And I, I made my way to the back. And uh, she began to explain something that was going on in her life. And to be honest, in my, you know, I was probably 34, 35 at the time, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. It's really not that big a deal. But for her, it was, okay? For her, this was a big thing. And this was, this was draining her emotionally. She, she began to tell me about it. And she began to cry. And she explained how hopeless she felt. So I could have just said, there, there, get over it. it you know, you're, once you're older, this is really going to seem like nothing. I could have been a jerk and said that, right? But I didn't. I said, okay, you know, we need to pray then, Teresa, because we're learning how to go to God. We're learning how to trust in Him in these moments. 
So we said, Teresa, we should pray and we should ask God what he thinks about this because maybe there's something that we're missing. Maybe there's a truth that he wants you to know about so that you don't have to feel well, this loss or this, this loneliness or this, this anxiety that you're feeling. So we prayed. We were quiet and we prayed and we listened. And God spoke to Teresa very quickly. And instantly she had a change of expression on her face. Her grief suddenly turned to joy. She told me that she was hearing from God or what she was hearing from God. And, and I listened. I said, oh, that's great. Isn't it good? It's good that we listen and we get God to speak into the situations instead of letting them take hold of us, right? She's like, yeah, that is good. And I said, okay, well, I heard a few things too. Can I share these with you? And she said, yeah, of course. And I shared. And it was just a couple of real simple encouraging things. She's like, oh, that's good. I needed to hear that. And her tears of sadness were now tears of joy. She was so thankful and at peace now because of how God gave her perspective on what was so brutal just a moment ago. So I tell you this story because this is the heart of God for you and me. We heard earlier in this passage that Jesus was telling his disciples, your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. In verse 20, Jesus promised joy for his disciples, knowing that he will defeat death as he comes back to life. In verse 22, he said, you have sorrow, so you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. Did Jesus say, don't worry, you're never going to go through anything rough and I promise life will always be joyful. No, he said, in spite of your difficulty, I will give you joy. That's the God that we serve, right? The joy Jesus gives comes as we know the truth about him. And that is something that no one can ever take away. The truth is for the disciples that Jesus is alive. They saw it firsthand. They touched his body as he was risen from the dead. And he's like, okay, this is amazing. And this changes my life forever. They knew the truth and that's what gave them joy. See, we also need to know the truth. That's where our source of joy comes from. It could be the truth about Jesus' victory on the cross, which is a, a general joy for all people if we choose to trust in him. Or it could be the truth about your situation that is affecting you negatively, just like it was affecting Teresa. When Jesus reveals the truth to us, our sorrow and grief is replaced supernaturally by the joy of God. Then here in verse 32, Jesus reminds his disciples in us that even in the worst moments here on earth, he is not alone. Jesus isn't alone. The Father is with him. The Father is there. Jesus knew that, and that's, why, that's what gave him courage to continue in obedience, doing this extremely difficult thing that the Father had sent him here to earth to do. So Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He tells his disciples in us that being his followers here on earth is going to be hard. There will be grief. There will be sorrow at times. But those things don't need to define us or defeat us. Joy is always possible for those who personally know and experience Jesus. Joy is there because the Father is always with us, even after Jesus is in heaven. When we know and we stayed anchored to the truth, that's when our ability to have constant joy, even in the hardest parts of our life, is ours. So Jesus brings this part of the conversation to a close with an iconic verse that so many Christians have decided to cling to over the years, but now we're hearing it a little bit more in context. Jesus ends chapter 16 by saying in verse 33, I have told you all this 
so that you will have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. There it is. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Ah, it's the truth. There's tension, there's difficulty, there's grief, but God wins, and He will never be defeated. And that's the, way, that's the way that we can take heart. I love how real Jesus is with us. Sometimes he reminds me of like this dad who tells his kids, yeah, you know what? Your grades are awful. Or you know what? You're not the best kid on the basketball team. Or you know what? You're, you have a weird sense of fashion. He tells us these hard truths, right? But then he says, and that's okay. Because those things aren't what define you. My love is what defines you. I love you. And we love each other. And Christ is in us. That's all that matters. That's kind of how I, fi- I picture Jesus some days. He tells us these hard things. But he says, hey, here's the perspective. Here's the truth that you need so that ultimately joy will be yours. There are people here today who need to be reminded that peace and joy, or the peace and joy that is eluding you, is something that you can find by knowing Jesus better, right? When we know him a little bit, or when we know one or two things about him, those things speak into lots of different situations. But Jesus actually has so much good stuff for us. He wants to speak into every situation of our life. And as we invite him in, as we make room for him to to be truth for us in every part of life, that's where he brings more and more joy into the most difficult, dark, hardest to reach places that we don't think he has access to. I'm here to tell you that you don't need to distract yourself to help yourself forget or, or to do anything to take away the hardship that you're going through. What's far more important is just knowing who Jesus is and knowing what he wants to say to you in the moment that you're living in. He has overcome the world for you. Trust in him today. Keep your eyes fixed on the one who loves you and who continues to lavish his love on you. If you have a situation in your life, and maybe today wasn't the day for you to put up your hand and ask for prayer, but you you have something going on and you're like, "Uh, I need to deal with this because this is just eating me up. That's actually my favorite part about being a pastor. Meeting with people who just want to turn to Jesus because... We can talk about all sorts of things here, but I usually get to say most of the stuff. But if you come to me in my office, I'm a great listener too, believe it or not. And I, want, I want you to come. I want you to talk and tell me what's going on. Not so that I know all the details, but you know, there's, there's been so many ways that God has led me to himself. I want to just do the same thing for you that he's done for me. I want to help lead you to the Father. I want you to connect with him. I don't want you to connect with Pastor Jeff because he connects with Jesus. You need your own connection. So why not come and we'll work on this together. You tell me, like, life is hard right here. Great. Let's talk about it. Let's pray. And I'm 100% confident, 100%, because this is how faithful Jesus is, that he will speak into your situation. He will give you a truth that is going to loose something in you that is trying to bind you. I'm positive of that. This isn't me speaking from experience or arrogance. This is me speaking because Jesus is that good. And he's been that way consistently. Man, what a... This message just went places I didn't think it would go. I just love how Jesus does that, right? It's uh, it's the first Sunday of the month, not just the first Sunday of the year. And, And this is the Sunday that we choose to observe and remember and celebrate Jesus' faithfulness by 
by observing communion. Because Jesus gave us a tool. He said, hey, remember, everything in life, it's all about me. It all comes back to me. And it's not because he's arrogant, but he knows that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the light. He's the bread of life. He's the, he's the water that pl- cleanses and purifies, right? He's everything for us. He says, guys, I don't want you to forget. So at this last supper that we were just talking about today, where this conversation happened that we just discovered, Jesus said at one point, hey, guys, here's some bread. I'm breaking this, and this is a symbol. This is something I want you to do. Every time you get together and break bread, I want you to remember that my body, I'm going to let it be broken for you. I'm going to let my body be taken and and abused so that I can give you freedom from your sins. And that's why we have this beautiful, simple symbol that is available in every country on earth. It's not like this is some, some sort of you know, unique Middle Eastern dish, but it's bread, bread, a simple staple of life. But Jesus is our staple of life too, right? So as we take this, let's remember together that Jesus willingly gave his body so that our sins could be forgiven. At this meal, Jesus also did something similar with a cup of wine. He says, this wine is symbolic of my blood. My blood is going to be spilt for you. Because God's own law, the law that he made, says that there is no forgiveness for sin without atonement through blood. Right? And so Jesus, to fulfill his own law, says, okay, I'm going to die. Because my blood is innocent. Yours isn't. But I'm going to take all of my sin or all of your sin upon myself and I'm going to wash you clean with my blood so you can be forgiven. You can walk free. You don't have to live in grief and sorrow anymore, but joy is yours. Let's do this together to remember. Oh, Father. It's amazing we can just talk to you like this. Thank you that we have direct access to know you, to love you, to hear from you, to ask you questions, to understand the solution to our needs. We praise you, Jesus, that you made a way for us to connect with the Father. We praise you, Holy Spirit, that you abide within us and that you allow us to connect with the Father who is in heaven, but we have this amazing supernatural lifeline. Lord, as we live our lives, you know what, let's, let's condense that actually, because sometimes we get a little bit ambiguous when we just say life or world or eternity. Lord, as we live this week, just these next five days, six days, seven days, somewhere in there, I ask Father God that you would please help us to remember when we're feeling grief or sorrow, that joy is meant to be ours. I pray that in those moments, we are going to pause. And we're going to say, God, you gave your disciples great joy in the midst of their deepest sorrow. Right now, I'm just going through something tough. I don't even know the solution. I don't even know how to pray and ask for what it is that I need. But you know what it is. So God, just help me in this moment of sorrow to remember your faithfulness, to remember your love, 
to remember the hope that you give me, to remember that you fulfill every promise that you've ever made, that you know my needs before I even say them, but now that as I'm telling you about them, I get to draw near to you. Thank you, Jesus, for this great conversation that was written down, that we get to learn from what you taught your disciples. Help us to live in these things. Amen.